0: Hi, this is Pastor Beth from Gate City Vineyard Church in Greensboro, North Carolina, and you are listening to this week's sermon. I hope you enjoy it, and that it helps you to know Jesus just a little better. I want to tell you a little story uh, that goes back to the second century AD. Goes back to the um, hundreds, uh, second century AD, it's about 12 Christians and these 12 Christians lived in the town of Skeleton, which is part of Numidia, which is in Northwest Africa. This is in the late uh, second century. They, um, Christianity had spread through, through the uh, Middle East into, the, into Egypt and into Northern Africa. And so they lived there in this area of Numidia, which is about where um, Tunisia is now. So it's kind of the Northern part of Africa. And this was, these were 12 Christians who just lived in this little town of Skeleton. And these quiet, skeleton Christians led a good life, loving the Lord, sharing their faith with others, Um, but they were brought before the proconsul Saturnus. He was a man who was in charge of persecuting Christians in the name of the emperor Marcus Aurelius. And so he um, took them before him in his court in Carthage, and they were seven men and five women, and he required them to swear allegiance to the emperor. And in doing this, he was basically asking them to swear first allegiance to the emperor above all others. And of course, they couldn't do that as Christians. They refused. And so one of them said this, I recognize not the empire of this world, but rather do I serve that God whom no man hath seen nor with these eyes can see. And so that's what he stated, that they would not swear their first allegiance to the emperor. And the Saturnist looked at them and noticed that they had a satchel with them. And he said, what's, what's in the satchel? And one of them said, this is the books by which he would have meant the four Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the letters of Paul. And that's what he had in his satchel. Saturninus gave them 30 days to reconsider, to think about uh, their life and whether they would pledge first allegiance to the emperor. After 30 days, they came back and said, nope, we're not going to. And so all of them were martyred and put to death by the sword in 180 AD. Now, there's so many important and moving things about this story. The first thing is that they were Africans. They were all from the nation, uh, the, the area in Af- northern Africa, and it's common today for people to say, you know, that the white man brought Christianity to Africa, but actually Africa was the seat of early Christianity. So much took place there. It was a very early place, people living for Christ, dying for Christ, in Africa uh, very early on. In fact, if you think about um, the... Ethiopian eunuch who bumped into Philip, that's a story in Acts, and he's from Ethiopia. He was an official in Ethiopia and in in Africa, and he came to know Christ. He was baptized right there, and then what did he do? He went right back to Africa, and he brought the Word of God to Africa. So I just love that many Christian leaders in the early church emerged from Africa, Tertullian, Cyprian, and of course, the famous Augustine. So uh, there's a rich heritage of Christian faith in Africa, and I just love that about the story. The other moving aspect of the story is that these 12 willingly, unflinchingly went to their death rather than give their allegiance to the emperor. And whenever I hear a story like that, I always say, Lord, I hope that I would have the courage if that were me, right? And how tempting it would have been for them to say, oh, sure, I give allegiance and just, you know, cross their fingers behind their back. know, oh, sure, I give allegiance. Do you just lie a little bit? Why not? But they were like, no, we're people of integrity. And they knew that to live in Christ and to die is gain, and so they went to their death willingly and unflinchingly, and I'm inspired by that. May we all have that kind of courage. But the second, or the third important detail of the story, in fact, the reason I'm telling it to you today, is what was in their satchel. Did you notice what they were carrying around with them? It was a large portion of what we now know as our New Testament. They had the Gospels, the four Gospels, and the letters of Paul. It's a majority of our New Testament, and they already had it with them, carrying it around as early as 180 A.D., all the way out in northwest Africa. We're talking about the Bible for these two weeks, last week and this week. If you missed last week's message, I encourage you to pull it up and listen to it. And and I'm I'm calling this message the the Beautiful, Baffling, Bountiful Bible. Because it is so beautiful, it's baffling, and it's bountiful. There's so much for us in it. Um, And one of the beautiful things I think about the Bible is the way God brought it together to be this book that we now carry around with all these books. There's 66 books in this book. And 40 different authors, and yet somehow the Holy Spirit brought it all together. What we call this is the canon of Scripture. When people talk about the canon, it's those parts, those books that were brought together because we believe they're the Word of God. They're inspired by God and for us and for our life. The writings, uh, sacred-inspired writings. And, you know, interestingly, if you know, if you know anything about church history and you think about the canon coming together into this book, how did it become these particular books in this Bible? Most people think about the 4th century. They think about in the 4th century there were some councils and a bunch of religious people got around and they finally codified what was in the Bible and kind of established it as one single book. And so people think that's when it happened. But actually, um, what's interesting to me, what I think is, is beautiful is that long before those councils... It wasn't like those men sat around with a a selection of 100 books and just said, well, we'll try this one and this one and this one, and we'll put that one together, all that together in the Bible. No, long, long before they even met, it was established among the Christian community what the Word of God was. God had already orchestrated. The Holy Spirit had already brought it together um, and, and decided what was the authoritative Scripture. It had already become extremely clear from almost the very start. And I think this is one of the most beautiful and incredible miracles of the Bible, about the Bible, the Holy Spirit bringing this book together, and let me tell you how how it happened. So, first of all, we know that in the New, in the New Testament times, in Jesus' time, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures were already kind of codified into a group of scriptures, and they were considered the Word of God. We see that in Scripture. Paul says to Timothy, "All Scripture is God breathed." And what's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament, the, new, the Hebrew Scriptures. That's all God breathed, that's useful for us. We need to know it, uh, it's God's Word. And so, right from the start, you see both all the apostles and Jesus all referred to the Scriptures as God's word, to be obeyed, to be listened to, um, and to be read. And so that, that they read a lot of the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, be the Hebrew scriptures to them. They read a lot of it in their services. That was part of their worship, was to read big chunks of the Old Testament in their, in their services. So the Old Testament was the Bible of the church in early, early Christianity. That's what they, that they knew. But very, very soon after Jesus' death, a large part of the rest of the writings what we call our new testament right the gospels the letters, and so on, were quickly recognized as authoritative scripture, Very right off the bat. Um, it's interesting. It didn't take um, three centuries for them to figure out that this was the word of God. They were already telling, Paul was already telling them, read this letter in this church. When you get this letter, read it to that church. He was already telling them to pass the letters around, to start reading them. Um, and there's a very interesting passage um, in 2 Peter, which I think is very telling. So 2 Peter, Peter would have written this book in about 60 65 to 68 AD so only about 30 years after Jesus' death very very early in the early church and this is what Peter says he's talking about Paul's writings so this, he's like these are like contemporaries right they're both writing letters and so on and this is what he says about Paul's letters he says bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with wisdom that God gave him he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So just in this line, he's, by saying the other scriptures, it means Paul's letters are also scripture. Already they recognize this is the word of God. This has this has inspiration in it. This is written by God through people, but this is from God. They recognize it as early as 65-68 A.D. I love that. Um, there's a lot of other examples of early Christians recognizing the scriptures as from God. We have Polycarp, who was an early church leader. It turns out he was probably discipled and mentored by none other than the Apostle Paul. Imagine the Apostle Paul being your mentor. That'd be, I mean, no, I'm sorry, Apostle John. Uh, So can you imagine John being your mentor? Like, that'd be pretty cool, right? So Polycarp was mentored by him, um, and he wrote this letter to the Philippians, also very early, 110 A.D. to 140. They don't know exactly when he wrote it, but it includes 100 quotations and allusions to the Gospels, to the letters of Paul, the letters of Peter, and the letters of John, all of them giving credence to them as the word of God. This is scripture. We're quoting it. We're using it. This is already, we know this is from God. Irenaeus, an early leader, bishop of Lyon, France, in 175 to 180 A.D., um, declared the writings of the evangelists, who are what they called the gospel writers, the evangelists, um, and the apostles are scripture, just as much as the law and the prophets. So already it was considered the holy word of God. Um, and finally, the second letter of Clement from the second century. This is also very early, 100 to 140 A.D. He has what's called the oldest surviving Christian sermon. It's fascinating to read. It's full of scripture. You think I use a lot of scripture? This guy, (laughs) a lot of scripture. Um, And he keeps going. He's drawing from the Old Testament, the New Testament, references to Isaiah, Ezekiel, Matthew, Luke, possibly Ephesians, the Hebrews. So all of these gospels and the letters were all considered holy scripture, the word of God from the very start. And so, what happened is people would take those scrolls. They didn't have a nice bound Bible like you and I do all put together for them. They had scrolls, they had pieces of paper with where they copied them and they would carry them around from church to church and read them. It was like gold. It was can you just imagine being at a church and you've only heard it maybe once before and somebody stands up and says, "Alright, I'm going to read you the letter of Paul to the Ephesians." And you get to just hear it. That's church right there. The Holy Spirit would fall. I mean, to hear those words, to hardly ever get a chance to hear them, and then to hear them read, they knew this was the word of God. It was like nothing else. And the Holy Spirit would just give them this gifts of being able to hear and read these, and people would gather them around. And so that's probably why the skeleton martyrs had them in their satchel. They were probably carrying them around to the different churches in northern Africa. The Holy Spirit was guiding, affirming, confirming the word of God from the very earliest moments. Christopher Hall, Episcopal theologian, states this. By the middle of the 2nd century AD, early Christians acknowledged and understood that the texts from the hands of the apostles were authoritative for the church and should be read in the context of worship. In other words, they're scripture, the very words of God. Now, it would be a couple more centuries before the New Testament canon was then made into what we now have as our Bible. That would be at those councils. Um, the church was, But the church was already using... Uh, all of the scripture. And so what I think, I think this is amazing and beautiful. Why am I spending so much time on this? Because we don't have to worry that something was left out of our Bible, that there was some other book written, like they try to say in the Da Vinci Code and some of the other things, right? That there was some book out there that was missing. We don't have to worry that they added things they shouldn't have added, that this book doesn't fit or that book doesn't fit. We don't have to worry about that either. We don't have to worry about a bunch of men in the fourth century just deciding, okay, I think it's this one and this one and this one and this one and this one. No, they were just confirming what was already completely obvious to everybody. This is the word of God. And so that gives me such great confidence in our word that we can read it and we know it's from him and we know it's his word. Um, And I just love that um, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing about our Bible. Amen. Amen? Amen. It's good for us to know that. I know not everyone uh, gets to hear all of that. Now, the second thing I want to say about the Bible, and not only is it beautiful, but it is baffling, okay? There's no question it's baffling. One of the things you come across in reading the Bible is the difficult passages. In fact, I have a whole big book about this thick, called The Hard Sayings of the Bible. So if you ever have some difficult passages you don't know what to do with, you can come in my office, see if that'll help you um, with it. But there's some things in the Bible that are just hard, hard to reconcile with modern-day thinking, hard to reconcile with what the heck did he mean by it, hard to reconcile sometimes with each other, with itself. Um, and we came across that this week in our Bible reading on Exodus 21, um, which is a hard passage about slaves and women. And you're like, why is this even in the Bible? And why, why are we looking at all this? And how do we deal with, about, with that? There's verses in the Bible about not wearing gold jewelry, and there's verses about women not speaking, and there's verses about hell and heaven and wars and all kinds of things that can be hard to understand. Um, And it's important that we think about how do we address those passages, because some people walk away from the faith because of these passages, especially the younger generation. They want to understand why is this stuff in there. Um, and so, I want to give you just a little bit of a help, okay? There's no easy answers to some of these things, and we can always have a longer conversation. But something that a seminary professor gave me really, really helped me when I was addressing some of these questions. And he said, We have to do three things when we read a passage in the Bible we have to go behind the text, we have to go in the text. And then we go in front of the text. We go behind the text, in the text, and in front of the text. I'm just going to give you, this is going to be a micro-seminary lesson, okay, on what, what those mean, okay? The, behind the text means understanding what the assumptions and the culture was behind the text. What's going on at that time? How did people live? What did they understand about life and God? What is it saying? And most importantly, what would they have heard when they heard this? What would it have meant to them? Because it was written to them in that time period, in their words, by people, in their culture. So what did it mean to them? What did they hear when they heard that? Um, And this came up again when we were reading Exodus 21. Some of those laws sounded very, very harsh. But what we have to remember is that we don't live in that culture. And the culture of that time back in around, I don't know, 1500-ish or so B.C. was a very harsh culture. There was very little concept of human rights. Women were the property of men, full stop. There was no discussion about that. There were no picketing lines. Like, that just was the way it was. There were slaves all the time from different places, very different from the kind of slavery that we understand here. Just a very different culture, very different culture. Um, And so the laws, which when we read them, we think, this is terrible, how unenlightened is this? Actually, to the people reading them at the time, they would have thought, this is amazingly wonderful. That God actually cares about how to treat the women and how the cares how to treat the, the slaves and how to, cares even how to treat the animals. He's even got stuff in there about animals. There were no animal rights back then. <laughs> they were just there to use. And so what we see is that God did care. What The message he was sending to the people that day is he did care about them so much more than their culture could have understood. And so that's behind the text. That's the, and the idea of looking behind the text. How would they have heard it? And you know what? This is hard work. It is hard work to look behind a text. First of all, it's hard to put our own cultural assumptions aside for a moment and try to get in the, faith, in the eyes of the people of that time. It's hard to know what the people of that time did. This is ancient history, and there's, we're always discovering new things, archaeology and so on. And so this is not easy stuff, um, and it's going to take some time to understand it. So don't expect that if you pick your Bible up for the first time and you read a passage you don't like, and you go, oh, I don't like that, and I don't understand it, so it must not be true. It's going to take a little more work than that to understand what it means, why it's like why it says what it says. Um, we have to take some time to understand it. Now, that's behind the text. So we have to do that work behind the text to understand it. And then we go in the text, okay? In the text means this, that we look at what the passage means in the literary style it's written in and also in the context of the book it's in. So first of all, you have to realize if you're reading Genesis and Exodus or even Matthew and Mark and Luke, those are all, these are all kind of narrative stories, right? So you're going to read that differently than you'd read Proverbs, which is more wisdom literature, or Psalms, which is more poetry. So there's a different way of reading all kinds of literature. Um, we also have to see what is happening in that passage. Don't ever just read a, pas- a, a, a verse. It's one of my problems with devotionals that have one verse at the top. I know why we do that, and it's good, it's okay. But like, be careful when there's one verse... And then they write you 25, you know, lines about it, okay? One verse is only one verse. You have to look what's before it, what's, bef- what's before it, what's after it. What does it mean in that context? Um, don't ever take that one. Uh, and, and what's interesting is when you're reading, especially Old Testament um, stuff, this, it, it's ancient writing. And so they write differently than we do. They leave out a lot of details. They skip over big chunks of time. They sometimes mix up the timeline. It drives us Western scientific people crazy. We're used to things that all go in logical order. Realize that's our culture. That's not the culture it was written in. So again, this is how we understand what was written. Um, And then finally, we not only take the verse in its context where it is in its book, in the paragraph, but you also have to look at the whole scripture. How does this verse or this passage fit into all of the scripture? What's the message of the scripture? See what's before it and after it. And, and what else it says about this topic? Here's an interesting example. There are only two verses in the whole Bible which talk about si- women keeping silent. And yet we have made an entire theology about women being silent in the church. Now those passages are are very local to their situation, and and there's a lot of discussion about what exactly they meant in that situation, and yet there are dozens of verses throughout the whole Bible about women leading and prophesying and speaking and teaching, okay? So, and you know I'm passionate about that, but we must not make a theology out of one verse or two verses. We have to understand the whole passage. So um, we have to understand that, and then finally, we get to go in front of the text, We all want to start here, but this is what you do after you've done the other two. front of the text, what does it mean to me? What does it mean in my culture today? What is he saying to me? What am I learning about God for me? Um, How do I incorporate it into my life? And here's the thing. The miracle of the Word of God is that even though it was written to people thousands of years before us in a culture very, very different from ours, yet it speaks to us right here in the 21st century and it spoke to people back in the Middle Ages, and it spoke to people at the, in the Renaissance, it spoke to people in the 20th century, it speaks to us here, it speaks to us no matter what color we are, what, how much money we make, where we've come from, it speaks to us because it is the word of God, and it's his message to each one of us. This is a miracle, do you realize? There's no other book that spreads across cultures like that, not one, not one, not one. And so we apply it, we get to see how it, uh, it appears to us, we understand what it meant to them, and so therefore what it would it mean to us. And now, do you understand how we can't get the order wrong? We can't go in front of the text before we've gone behind the text. Because if we go in front of the text first, we're going to bring all our culture and all our assumptions and all our biases and all the way we think it should be and what we think God should say, and, then, and we're going to bring that into the text and we're going to get it wrong because it doesn't make sense in our current culture. It makes only sense first to start in their culture, understand what it meant to them, and then bring it forward to us. You understand that? So that's how we get things in, out of order. One of the interesting um, things is that the young generation now has a lot to say about the Bible and how it's old-fashioned and misogynistic, and they talked about slavery, and they talked about all these things. And I think, really, it's from, um, it's from bad Bible study. <laughs> Because if you, go to the, if you go behind the text, you understand how progressive and how enlightening and how freeing the Bible was to the people and the cultures in which it was read. And it is freeing to us today. It is freeing to us today. So I hope you're getting the sense that to know the Bible well and understand it takes some work. Can't be lazy. Um, Paul said to Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. We have to work a little bit to understand. Um, We also have to have a lot of humility. When we think we know what something means, realize that there's a lot of different ways to interpret these things. We're always finding out new things about the culture and the language even and uh, archaeology and so on. And things that people believed only a few hundred years ago we now think are not true. It's kind of humbling to think about the fact that it was only 150, 200 years ago that people used the Bible to justify owning slaves. Now, they used the Bible for that, okay? And here's the thing. There's many things wrong with that, of course, because that is completely a misunderstanding of what God is saying in his word and what he means. And so we know that God would not support slavery, owning another human being. Every person is made in the image of God and loved by him. But it's, among other things, it's bad Bible study, Because what they did was they took their current culture and their current assumptions, which were that they wanted it to be okay to have slaves. It worked for them, right? And so they wanted to make it work, and so then they took that assumption and put it into the Bible to find all the passages that would somehow prove what they wanted. See, that's the wrong order. With devastating results, devastating results. Bad Bible study leads to bad theology, leads to bad action. And that hurts the church. Yeah. This is why I spend all this time on this sort of thing. Because bad Bible study leads to bad theology and leads to bad action, which is a bad witness to the church. I should have put a fourth one, bad witness to the, to the world. And so we must be so careful that we come to the Bible as with humility, realize that we are all learning, um i try to remember this i was saying this to charles the other day i like to think about how in 200 or 300 years from now how will christians look back at how we interpreted the bible today what will they think and will they go why did they possibly believe that about god like how in the world could they believe that just like we look back at people 200 years ago and think how did they do that humbling right we think we got it all figured out like this is perfect the way we do things right um, but God, God's so much bigger than us, and we are very limited in our understanding. And so let's be humble. Let's go to the Word. Let's stick, be focused on what we do know that Jesus died for our sins. He loves us. He's the Son of God. And that's the gospel. That's what we focus on the rest of it. We can have a discussion about. But we need humility. So I wanted to, just for fun, take us on a very quick example of this. Uh, the Behind and front in and in front and so we're going to take Matthew 5:39, 39 um, which is a kind of tricky passage if anyone slaps you on the right cheek turn to him the other one And so this is a passage that people have used over the years to justify this is why we should be pacifists and not fight a war, right? You're supposed to turn the other cheek. They've used this passage, which, you know, you could argue that from other scriptures, but not from this one. Um, This is one reason um, that people have said that you should never self-defend yourself, that you should never, like, have a gun or anything that you self-defend yourself um, because you're supposed to just turn the other cheek. This has also been used to tell women that they should stay in an abusive marriage because they're supposed to turn the other cheek, right? So this passage has been used for a lot of different applications let's look at it behind the text in the text from the text behind the text what would a person at that time have thought this meant what did it mean to them to us slap if I go up and slap you across the cheek you're gonna be like okay <laughs> you're gonna be calling the police but in those days it was a backhand slap and it was an old insult it wasn't an assault it wasn't probably all that painful it was more of an insult To them, and so maybe the the kind of similar to today, it would be if I cursed you out, or if somebody trashes you on Facebook, it'd be that kind of thing, right? That you're getting insulted by this person. That's what it meant. It was not an actual assault. So now that's behind the text in the text. So what does that mean? Around the text, it talks about don't resist one who's evil. It says, um, if anyone sues you and takes your turnic, tunic, let him have your cloak too. So it's all about kind of people who are coming against you and not retaliating. And, and, and um, Jesus talks about uh, it's, this is different from an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And so he's really prohibiting us from like getting back what's ours, kind of fighting. If they're going to fight me, I'm going to fight them. If they're going to insult me, I'm going to insult them. That's what he's really talking about there. So in front of the text, what does this mean for us today? Does it mean that when we're insulted, we act in love? That We don't retaliate. If someone trashes you on Facebook, you don't trash them back. If someone insults you, you don't insult them back. doesn't mean we don't run away. If you're being physically assaulted, that's a completely different thing. Um, and there's other scriptures about defending yourself. doesn't mean that you don't potentially fight a war, a just war. Uh, there's other verses that talk about that. But it's about um, not escalating violence and insults. And we don't fire back. So, isn't that interesting how just taking kind of a hard passage, a hard verse, behind the text, in the text, in front of the text, starts to make things a little clearer for us, right? So, I just give you that as a little, little uh, example. Um, it's a great book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. I highly recommend it if you really want to get into Bible study a little bit more and know how to read the scriptures. Um, but the, I want to get us to the last point, which is that the Bible is bountiful. And, you know, at the end of the day, the point of all this is to see Jesus. The point of this whole Bible is to see Jesus, to know Jesus, to follow him, to love him, to be in relationship with him. That's the point of all of this. So I encourage us to learn the scripture because it gives us a foundation of truth We're able to discern truth from error. We're able to, when we hear from the Lord, from the Holy Spirit, we're able to see, is that scriptural, is it biblical? We need to know the Bible, but don't be so biblically smart that you forget that the whole point of this is to find Jesus okay, that he loves you, and he wants, to encou- he wants you to encounter him in his words, and here's the thing, you can know nothing of anything I just told you, okay, you could have not, you missed this whole sermon, and never, or maybe you're here, and you didn't listen, whatever, you can, none of that is fine, okay, you've been sleeping through the first part, wake up right now, because you can still open it up, and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you, and he will, he will. Simple as we are, we don't have to know everything. We know that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us. And so I just want to give you three very brief ways that we can encounter the bounty of God's word for us in our spirits. The first one is to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you every time you read his word. I don't care if you're doing four big chapters in Exodus for our Bible reading plan, or if you're just grabbing one verse on the way out the door in the morning. I try not to ever open up the Bible without saying, Holy Spirit, speak to me. Because he will will illuminate things that you've never seen before. You could have read that verse a hundred times. And the hundred first time, he's going to show you something that's new, that's different, that's for you. That's the way his word is. It's living, it's active. And so he's going to speak to you through it. A couple of verses just about that. Consequently, from Romans 10, 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word. So your faith is going to be built as you just pick up the word and read it. Isaiah fifty-five eleven. I love this. So my word that goes out from my mouth, this Bible, will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent, up, sent it. He's going to do something in you because of the word you read. He's going to do something in you. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. His purposes will prevail. And then finally, of course, so tender, John ten twenty-seven. Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. We're listening to the voice of Jesus when we open our Bibles. We're listening for his voice. So the second way to receive the bounty, the first is to ask for the Holy Spirit to speak of us. The second is then to do what Jesus tells you to do. There's the rub. (laughs) Do what he says. You'd be surprised how well that works. Um, In Matthew 7, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like what? Who's he like? A wise man who built his house on a rock, the rain came down, the streams rose, winds blew, beat against the house, but it did not fall because its foundations were on the rock. See, we're building a foundation. And what happens if you don't? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, like a foolish man who built his house on sand, the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. So we have to hear the word and then do it. Every now and then I come across someone it was all tied up in knots because life's just not working and everything's going wrong and I've, there's all these problems and everything. And I'll say to them, have you gone into the Word? Like, what's... And he's like, yeah, the Bible says this. I should probably do this and probably do that and probably do that. And I said, I'll say to them, so did you do any of that? And they'll say, no. And I'll say, I think I know what your problem is. <laughs> I mean, he's told it to us, right? Um... Do what it says. And here's a wild idea. If we try to do what he says, we're going to actually probably see some of our problems resolved, Um, some of our interpersonal problems resolved. And here's the thing. We get all caught up, as I talked about earlier, in the hard passages of the Bible, right? so many hard passages. I don't know what it means. Like, what does it really mean? But there's about 95% of the passages of the Bible, you do know what it means. (laughs) It's very obvious what it means. And we just have to have a harder time actually doing it, right? I mean, let me just read you a couple. Um, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do we know what that means? Do we know how to do that? How about this? Do everything without grumbling or complaining. Hard one. Love your neighbor. Anything we don't understand about any of that, I think it's pretty clear. And so why don't we just do what God says? And if we do what he says, here's the thing. When we listen to God and he shows us something in his word, and then we step out in faith and we just do it. We obey his word. We will start to see God move in powerful ways in our life. That's when the power comes down. That's when, that's when God really starts to move. Don't only, I know we're meant to move when God, you know, God just showed me something in my prayer time. Good. I'm glad about that. First of all, make sure it's, from the, it's consistent with the word. He's not going to show you something in your quiet time that's consi- not consistent with the word. But man, when we stand on the word, we know this is his promise. We know this is truth. And so um, nothing builds your faith and your love for God more than to step out in faith and see him move. And so then the last thing I'll say about the bounty of the Bible is to listen in it for God's heart for you. So we're asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us. We're going to do what it says. But then as you're reading, listen to what God's heart is for you. If you've gone through the forming class uh, with the tackles, um, you know they spend a lot of time just getting into the word, but then listening, just stopping and listening and letting the, the love of God and the grace of God kind of come to you through his words. Um, We don't have to get into a deep study of it to understand, to just slowly and thoughtfully read our Bibles and let him speak to us. And I just wanted to quote this from the forming class. Um, He said, Dave Tackle writes this, he says, we're allowing the spirit of God to teach us about life in the kingdom as he reveals his word in our heart at the same time. See, that's the thing, it reveals not only God, but it reveals our heart, right? Our heart is laid bare when we read the word. And we're not settling for our own understanding of the text, but allowing the spirit to reveal and then internalize the truth. This approach to Scripture is not an attempt to master the text or even figure out how to apply it, but a way of letting the Spirit reveal to us what we need to see and hear. Meditate on the Word day and night. Let it soak into your being. Let it be something that speaks to you day after day after day after day. It will be new every morning. His mercies will be new every morning. So I hope through all this... These two weeks, you've grown in an appreciation for this Bible that we all have multiple copies of. Keep in mind that there are places in this world which still are grateful to have one, that they share one between multiple people sometimes in a church. It is the Word of God, and it's a treasure to us, and it's beautiful. It's beautiful literature, poetry, wisdom, all brought together by the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way to be our Bible. It is baffling. There's stuff in here you and I will never understand. And there's many, many different ways to interpret it. But you know what? It's a lifelong adventure to find out what God is saying in his word and what it means to us. And it is bountiful. There's a bounty of riches in it for every one of us who will receive, will come to it with a heart ready to receive and to hear. So we don't worship the Bible, but, man, we're so grateful for it. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray together. I'm going to invite the band. Come on up. And as I do, I just... um, want us to just pray for a moment, just give thanks to God for his word, but also to invite God to speak to us. He speaks to us through his word. We're going to be singing, word of God, speak. Lord, when we come to your Bible, Lord, with all of our questions and with all of our wondering, Lord, most of all, we want you to speak to us. We want to hear from you, Lord. And we thank you that you've given us the truth that we can stand on, that we can learn and know. But I pray that we would know you most of all. Thank you, God, that your word points us to you. Open up our eyes and our ears to hear you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Speak to us, Lord. Help us to read your word, to hear your voice, to listen, obey, and come to know you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. If you would like to learn more about Gate City Vineyard, you can find out more at our website at gatecityvineyard.com. Have a wonderful and joyful day.